A biologist working as a principal investigator leading a large research team can do a lot to study a single cell on its own. But to understand millions, even billions of cells interacting with one another in a brain? Now that is a challenge. To carry out this kind of project, it takes a different approach. It takes a team science approach, right? So our operation is becoming more and more similar to what's happening in the physics field, you know, astronomy field, you know, teams working together, rather than the traditional individual PI-driven research that's prevalent, still prevalent in biomedical research. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, The Big Science Project of Mapping the Brain, I'm Corey S. Powell. An average human brain is anything but average. It contains roughly 100 billion neurons, it's linked together by at least 100 trillion synaptic connections, it's bathed in ever-shifting chemicals and reacting to ever-changing stimuli. Making sense of all that complexity might seem like an unattainable goal, but Hong Kui Zheng is working on it. She's the director of the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle, which is part of the Brain Initiative. The Brain in Brain Initiative stands for Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies. It's a vast interdisciplinary alliance of researchers working to map out exactly how the human brain functions and what happens when it malfunctions. Zheng herself started on a reduced scale, first studying fruit flies, then moving up to mouse brains, before daring to tackle humans. I started our interview by asking about how her work at the Allen Institute for Brain Science fits within the overall goal of the Brain Initiative. Here's our interview, which has been edited for length and for clarity. The primary goal of the Brain Initiative is to develop neurotechnologies that will facilitate the understanding of the circuit function of the brain and how it changes in diseases. So in conjunction with that, the Brain Initiative also supports addressing a series of questions using those technologies. And they set up seven different priority areas. And number one priority out of the seven is to understand the cellular composition and diversity of the brain. Basically, coming up with a catalog of cell types and understand the relationship and the structure and function of those cell types, really, you know, as a foundation to begin to understand the brain itself. And then we at the Allen Institute have been interested in the cell type problem from the very beginning. You know, we generated this brain atlas profiling all the genes, all the 20,000 genes in the mouse genome, how they are distributed in the brain. And that gene expression information is very much related to the cells in the brain. You know, we already identified a lot of cell type specific gene expression information. We have been doing that in the human brain as well. So we already established multiple technology platforms, especially genomic, transcriptomic technology platforms that allow us to profile individual cells in the brain very efficiently. So we obtained several major grants from the Brain Initiative Cell Census effort. And through those grants, we have been partnering with NIH and other investigators across the country to generate that cell atlas for the mammalian brain. I do want to get into some of those details of the mouse work, but before we do that, I I want to back up a little bit to the overarching paradigm in which this work is operating. As soon as you say brain circuit function, for the non-expert, people start to think about an analog to a digital computer, thinking about the brain 
somehow yeah. as equivalent to a literal wiring diagram. How much is that actually a useful paradigm? And how does your approach kind of get toward that goal? Yeah, it is a very good analogy comparing the brain to the computer. You know, for the computer to work, there are those chips, individual units, CPUs, and they are connected to each other. This wiring diagram, exactly what you're saying, in order to perform computation between those different individual units. So brain is a much more advanced computer. The cell types, the individual cells and cell types would be the units, the chips, but the cell types are much more flexible and different, right? They are not the same. They are not the same unit. They are diverse. They have different properties. You know, they can change, they can tune their properties. You know, they don't really just perform linear functions. So they are advanced chips. And then the wiring diagrams of the brain basically is the connections, interconnections, right? Between the cells and neurons of the brain. And that wiring diagram is extremely complex and specific. So that allows the brain to compute in an extremely sophisticated way that we do not understand yet. Because you've been focusing a lot on the mouse brain and understanding the cell types there. Can you give me a little bit of a snapshot of where are you in that work and how do you break down a task that's that big and complicated into tangible units? So fortunately, the brain is already broken down into individual cells, right? So that unit is the cells. What we need to do is just to characterize the cells, measure the different properties of the cell. The genes a cell express, we call it transcriptomes. You know, transcription is the expression of the gene. So if we obtain a transcriptome, it's a collection of the expression level of all the genes in the genome. Technically, you can obtain that. And then there is the shape of the cell. There's the firing, you know, action potential firing properties of the cell. There are other properties that you can measure. So you do all these different measurements, quantitative measurements from the same cell, and then you can use clustering analysis to look for similarities of the properties between cells, right? And then you use clustering analysis to identify types of the cells. Basically, a cell type would be a group of cells that have similar properties with each other and different properties from other cells. The complex issue here is that the cellular properties are very, very diverse. And it's very hard to actually measure in, the, in all kinds of different kinds of ways. That's why, you know, we develop different technologies to capture cells in different ways. An important issue here is also that, okay, two important issues. One is that preferably you want to measure the different properties in the same cell. So you can correlate, you understand the relationship between different properties better. You know, if you measure A in, in cell one and then measure property B in cell two, it's very difficult for you to understand how property A and B are related to each other and how they are related to cells one and two. But if you measure A and B in one and you measure A and B in two and you measure A and B in many, many cells, then you clustering, the clustering analysis will make sense, right? It will help you to understand whether the A and B characterize different kinds of cells and whether A and B always go together characterizing the cells in the same way or not. We call it a multi-model analysis. That's very important. Another important feature, of course, very important feature is scalability. There are millions to billions of cells. The mouse brain contains 75 million cells. The human brain contains 82 billion cells. So if you want to gain a really systematic understanding, if you want to have a complete parts list, you have to profile millions of cells from the mouse brain. 
in order to gain that comprehensive, you know, extends sampling. Are you looking at brain slices or at individual neurons? I'm trying to just understand the actual laboratory process of how this gets done. Yeah, so there are many, many ways, all of the above. In some studies, you have to use brain slices in vitro. In other studies, you do in vivo. You do in vivo experiment because you want to measure the function of the cell in a behaving animal. Mm -hmm. So you do fluorescent label, you use calcium indicators to label the cell, and then you do, you know, two photon imaging to measure the activity of the cell through the calcium spikes. So those experiments would be in vivo, and then other experiments would be in vitro. You use electrode in slices, or you label the cell with a dye, you trace connections between the cell. So can you give me a snapshot of how far are you into the mouse brain cell mapping project? And what is the end goal when you consider the project complete? Yeah, so for the project complete, of course, we can never call the project complete because there are so many things you can measure, right? So what we are striving at now is to obtain, we call it a molecular atlas of the cell. So we use primarily transcriptomic information. We want to use just the transcriptomic information to generate a cell type map atlas across the entire mouse brain. You know, we published a series of papers last year in Nature, right? And that's just for one region, motor cortex, you know. It took us three years to put all the different publications together for one brain region, the motor cortex of the brain. But in the meanwhile, we have already proceeded in generating data for other parts of the brain. And now we actually have already completed that data generation. And we are in the process of writing up manuscripts and we're in the process of analyzing the data, creating a what we call a cell type taxonomy, you know, like a species taxonomy creating a cell type taxonomy for the entire mouse brain and write it up. We expect, we hope to publish the data, publicly release the data by the end of this year and have the the papers appear next year. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to promise things before it happens, but I just want to tell you, we're working on generating the cell atlas for the entire mouse brain right now. You alluded to kind of three orders of magnitude jump from the mouse brain to the human brain, just in terms of yeah. cell numbers and never mind complexity. So where are you in laying the groundwork for doing the equivalent project on the human brain? Yeah, so I think the groundwork would be both conceptual level and technical level. At the technical level, we have to scale up from what we do in the mouse into human. We probably don't need to scale up proportionally like, you know, profiling a thousandfold times more cells in order to understand the human brain, but at least tenfold, maybe 10 to 100fold, that would be my estimate, so that we can also profile the entire sample, sample the entire human brain as well. And the reason why I said we don't need to do it, probably we don't need to do a thousandfold more, is because the conceptual advance that we are generating now in the mouse brain. We understand the organization, the basic parts list, how they are distributed spatially, how they comprise of the different systems of the brain. You know, there is the motor system, sensory, there's the cognitive, there's the memory, there's the innate behavior, there's all these different parts of the brain. We now can provide the cellular composition for each part of the brain, you know, the, the, the general network. So that information can be carried over into the brain. That helps us to develop a strategy to be able to sample the different parts of the brain and then compare with mouse immediately to see 
whether the cellular diversity is a qualitative difference or not qualitative. Is it really a diversity difference or is it just a number difference? Mm-hmm. Right? So you go to some regions, you sample, you find that actually the number of cell types in a homologous human region and a mouse region doesn't change much, even though the number of cells in those two homologous regions changed a hundredfold. So that just means that there are more cells in a type in human compared with mouse, right? That's yeah. so that, That's a very important thing you need to find out, yes. right? Whether there are a thousand times more cell types in a human brain, it's just that there are more cells in each type. You know, how the cell type, how they scale up, right, in one way. So having a comprehensive mouse map will help us to understand that question, you know, to analyze complexity one region at a time and know what to look for. So, yeah. You're leading up to my really big questions. We're just okay. like, like, how you start to put the connectome, you know, how do you put a map of connections and a map of cell types together to start to understand yeah. what's actually going on in that brain? Yeah, that's the really, really big question coming up next. Yeah. There's going to be multiple ways of doing this. I don't know if you have heard about or covered electron microscopy connectome or not. You know, the electron microscopy connectome is the, the ultimate thing that you will do. However, the important thing is that you really need to associate cell type information with the connectome, right? The idea is to understand how the cell types are wired together. So for that, there are really, you know, different ways of doing this. You need to label the different cell types. And then using microscopy, fluorescent label based light microscopy, higher resolution light microscopy, or you know, electron microscopy level, maybe EM labels. There's also molecular labels that works for electron microscopy now. You label different cell types and you collect the imaging data and you trace, you know, you literally trace individual neurons and find how they are connected, where the synapses are on the neuron, and derive, you know manually or computationally derive the wiring type. So I would say in summary, you know, to summarize what you need to do, first you need to find a way to label different cell types, right? And then you need to generate imaging data, either light microscopy or electron microscopy data. And then once you have the data, there's a lot of computation involved that will allow you to trace and what we call the reconstruction reconstruction of the morphologies, the individual cells and where the synapses are. And it is from that reconstruction, then you derive wiring diagrams. In the context of convergence, convergence issues in science, different fields, and different problems that require multiple techniques and multiple ideas from multiple fields. How much of that is part of the challenge of bringing those different types of expertise together to work <laughs> on the problem? So that is a major challenge and opportunity, yes. To carry out this kind of project, it takes a different approach. It takes a team science approach, right? So our operation is becoming more and more similar to what's happening in like physics field, you know, astronomy field, you know, teams working together rather than the traditional individual PI-driven research that's prevalent, still prevalent in biomedical research, right? So within the Art Institute, we have this big science, team science and open science mission. So we already have a big team science culture. We embark on large scale projects. We have multidisciplinary teams working together. You know, there's a core mission and really people really coordinate, you know, with each other to make things happen. 
So the major challenge is really just to let them to understand what each other is doing. You know, basically understand what we need to do, why we do this, and that's usually coming from biologists and how to do it, right? So that, you know, very often the problem has to be solved computationally. For example, both the analysis of the genomics data, the transcriptomics data that I mentioned, as well as the analysis of the images, the light microscopy, and especially electron microscopy images, it, it takes a lot of computation. Especially, for example, the electron microscopy images, there's a lot of AI, you know, machine learning involved, right. yeah, learning how to reconstruct fast. Yeah, a lot of training because we're dealing with really, really large scale data sets now, and computation is really critical. I know this is a project that's still in process, but what would you say are the biggest insights that you've been able to gain so far from your work, especially on the mouse model? We've already done quite a bit of publishing. How has that kind of deepened our understanding of the brain and brain disorders? The work that we have done in a mouse brain really lays the foundation, much more detailed and comprehensive foundation for us to begin to understand the human brain, its normal function, as well as changes in a disease situation. I emphasize the word detailed and comprehensive. Those two words, they are really critical because you cannot look at a brain, human brain, and a diseased brain and figuring out exactly what's happening by only, you know, some kind of a, you know, fuzzy observation technique. You know, you mix the heterogeneity. When you mix it together, you really do not gain a clear understanding. But by laying things out, Clearly, you know, at a cell type specific level, it allows you to really dissect what is happening. And a lot of this knowledge can be translated into human. After all, human and mouse are, you know, 90% similar to each other. A lot of things can translate. Of course, there are also areas that cannot be translated. But that's exactly, you know, what we can do. We can identify the similarity and the difference. Similarities and differences between let's say a mouse brain, you know, animal model brain and a human brain. Understand where the differences are is really critical. And then in terms of human diseases, then you would be able to dissect which particular part of the brain or part of the pathways that are changed and what kind of changes happen in the disease country. So it gives you a much clearer, crisper picture than what you know, we had before. Yeah. And it is really the hope that then you can get into the underlying causes of the brain by having such a clearer picture about what's happening. Right. I mean, it's the goal that you'd be able to understand not only what are the differences, but you would actually have some concrete understanding of what's changed in connections and what's changed in the genomics of that part of the brain when you're looking at somebody with a disease condition as opposed to a baseline condition. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And we provide a map, a detailed map to allow you to understand the variations of the map. So learning, disease, cognition, it's like you identify the players of the orchestra. And then you can begin to figure out how the players work together to generate the music, which part is doing what. You know, in cognition, which parts are activated? This group, violinists, are working together and generating this, whereas that group is forming the memories. And this change is related to some kind of a disease, something like that. So you can begin to derive an active map instead of the static map that we initially have, you build activities, you build dynamics, and you build function into that map. Thank you for covering so much territory and covering it yeah. so well and so clearly. It's really hugely helpful. It's my pleasure talking to you, and you asked many, I think, great questions. 
great questions to help also, you know,、okay. help me to organize my thoughts. That was Hong Kui Zheng speaking with me about her research at the Allen Institute for Brain Science and how it fits in with the overall effort of the Brain Initiative. For a different excerpt of our interview, read my article, "The Brain Cartographer." It appears in the July-August 2022 special issue of American Scientist. You can also find it online at www.americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine. Published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was edited and produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Corey S. Powell. Thank you for listening.